0: Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And this is episode 216. That intro music was a new song entitled Ready Your Weapon from my friend Faye, P-H-A-E. A A very talented artist and musician, uh, a very smart dude in general, who used to work in the uh, video game industry. Our friendship goes all the way back to my old clubbing days. Still can't see a glow stick or smell Vic's vapor rub without thinking of ecstasy. Uh, The vapor rub was for this weird thing people would do, where if you felt your high was wearing off, you'd take a deep whiff, and for some reason it would kind of kick-start your high again. Uh, Well, this episode is starting off on a rather strange foot, isn't it? But before I forget, uh, I'd also like to give some Facebook shout-outs. So we have Jack Jast. Tina Marie Fisher, Randall Nathan Shapiro, and I actually had some great conversations uh, with Randall, and um, it reminded me how I want to add a correspondence segment to the show where, with the person's permission, of course, I I just read some correspondence, uh, our kind of back-and-forth dialogue on the show. Yeah, Randall and I had some some pretty weighty yet also very enjoyable philosophical conversations via uh, the Weekend out Facebook page uh, messaging system. I'd also like to give a shout out to Scott Sakura. I hope I'm not butchering your last name. Scott is the one and only Beardcaster. Uh, he has a great podcast uh, called The Beardcaster. And um, I mentioned him on the last episode because he used some of last year's uh, Weekend Out Christmas special audio, the uh, special I did about Krampus in his 2016 special on Krampus. And I thought he did a great job, and I was really honored that he used that audio. Uh, Let's see, we also have Derek Merrill Uh, Did I already give a shout out to Michael Thompson? I might be at the point where I'm repeating myself now. Michael Thompson, Jacob Reynolds. Uh, I I remember um, giving a shout out to Jennifer, Jennifer Brown. And there's Nathan Brown. And uh, Nathan's been very active on the Weekend Out Facebook page. And I'm very grateful. Any little thing people can do, like simply liking a post chiming in with your own two cents. Um, I think that all helps to make the Weekend Out Doubt Facebook page a more dynamic and interesting place, and uh, once again, really appreciate it. Okay, so here we go. I'm not even sure where to start, so maybe if I just take a step backwards, so previously on the Week in Doubt, love saying that, I was talking about how I started getting these chronic headaches again, similar to the ones I got years and years ago after being in a couple of car accidents, and how the antidepressants that I've been taking for years to keep the pain at bay suddenly seem to be losing their efficacy. And by the way, I had mentioned that I have an upcoming neurology appointment, and that's actually uh, tomorrow, so uh, that should be interesting. Well, anyway, since recording that episode, the headaches had actually started to get worse and more frequent, despite my best efforts to try to you know, keep a positive mindset. I was basically back to experiencing almost 24-7 pain, something I really haven't had to deal with since my early 20s. It got so bad that on Friday, I actually left work early to go see the doctor. After having a nurse practitioner and a doctor both suggest that I up the dose of my antidepressant, I finally gave in. I was hesitant to up the dose because often unwanted side effects, sexual or otherwise, can be dose-related in their intensity. But at this point, I was like, uncle, I feel like a dying animal. If it helps the pain, I'll take it. And once again, just in case you haven't heard me ramble on about it before, antidepressants, as strange as it sounds, are actually a very common treatment for chronic pain, especially chronic headaches. And theoretically, it's kind of a two-fold mechanism. On the one hand, it's thought that serotonin, that feel-good chemical in the brain that's manipulated by many antidepressants, can relieve or at least alter the perception of pain. And on the other hand, if the pain is stress- or depression-related, because, strangely enough, depression is often accompanied by physical symptoms like ongoing aches and pains, then by treating the depression, you may also be able to treat or alleviate the accompanying uh, physical symptoms. And I have to admit, I think I may have been getting a little cocky. When I attempted to wean off of antidepressants last winter, I was rather pleased to notice that although my headaches started to return, after about a a month or two, I believe, my mood, generally speaking, didn't seem to change or decline much, which led me to believe that the only reason why I was probably really on the antidepressants in the first place was to treat the headaches, and that maybe I really didn't have any kind of serious mood disorder beyond just a sprinkling of mild depression and a little anxiety. But now that my dose has been up to looking back in hindsight, I was really kind of a mess these past few weeks. Really gloomy, despairing thoughts, irritability. I'm a laid-back guy, so I wasn't snapping at people or anything, but my nerves were pretty frayed. Just the general lack of well-being, a kind of lingering dysphoria. I was getting caught in these kind of negative thought loops where I was almost obsessively worrying about negative stuff. And all of that, including the headaches, started to lift after a few days uh, after increasing the dosage of my antidepressant. Although, generally, physicians usually warn you that it can take weeks before you really start to feel the effects of an antidepressant. I guess you could make an argument that maybe the negativity and despair was a byproduct of suffering from chronic pain, and it is frustrating trying to tease out the truth. It's a bit of a chicken or the egg kind of thing. Did the chronic pain cause the depression, or did the depression cause the chronic pain? And to what role, if any, does the head trauma incurred in those car accidents play? But all I know is that either way, I get some relief from both the pain and the mental slash emotional distress while on antidepressants, And in retrospect, once again, some of the symptoms I described are classic signs of depression. Black thoughts, a sense of despair, lethargy, muddied thinking, uh, aches and pains, irritability. So anyway, this is where the story gets a little wild. And if you're my friends, you may not believe it, but I ended up acting inappropriately at a party. Hard to believe, right? So I... So I started on my increased dose on a Friday after I had left work early and went to the doctor, and the next day, Saturday obviously, I had a a Christmas party I was really looking forward to going to, and the pain and nausea from the headaches was so bad I actually considered not going, but I had my mind and heart set on going, so I decided to do whatever I had to to try to pull myself together and temporarily kill the pain. So I gobbled niacin, magnesium, B vitamins, took two a leave. Even though you shouldn't well on antidepressants, around that time I also took tryptophan. Uh, the migraines were causing sinus pressure, so I blasted some afrin up my nose. Dramamine for the nausea. And because I had been feeling kind of uh, confused and lethargic, I also took this really powerful Yohimbi pill that had other stimulants in it as well. And if you're not familiar, Yohimbi is this powerful stimulant that weightlifters and athletes, uh, etc., have been taking for years, primarily as a stimulant or fat burner. Uh, but it does turn out that's also an aphrodisiac of sorts. Uh, but it's extremely powerful, uh, especially in high doses and uh, when mixed with other stuff like the type I took. I had taken it twice before by myself and just used all the excess energy to work out and get stuff done, but I had never taken it in a social setting before. And I'm going to leave out the names of all my friends and acquaintances, so if you fall into either category and were there that night, don't worry. So I get to the party around five. Characteristically, I'm one of the first ones there. Now, I thought that despite how nervous or revved up I felt inside, that I probably had a pretty good lid on it, but I was only there literally a a couple of minutes, and one of my friends asked if I wanted a volume. Not a usual greeting or courtesy gesture, even in my circle of friends, but she could obviously tell that something had me wired up like a Christmas tree. And I have to admit, the Valium did help both take the edge off a little, and it also helped relax the tension in my neck from the migraines. Now, usually, when I go to a party, I'll maybe drink in between four to six drinks or over the course of the night. Maybe if I'm getting really wild, maybe up to eight or something like that. This night, I was so desperate to kill the pain in my head and to calm myself down because of the uh, stimulant, or stimulants, plural, given all the ingredients, uh, that I shit you not, I drank about ten hard ciders. And if I had been surrounded by other freaks who were also intoxicated on the same psychoactive witch's brew that I had uh, swallowed that night, it may have been one epic party— but when you're the only one in that state, it's a bit odd. It's like being the only drunk guy in a room full of teetotalers. Other people were getting their drink on and eating weed cookies, but I was the only one on the verge of going Super Saiyan. Uh, my power level was definitely over 9,000. I have to admit that the massive amount of alcohol, the volume and that weird, overly potent Yohimbi stimulant cocktail, all came together to create what I can only compare to some kind of hybrid cocaine slash ecstasy high that was actually quite enjoyable, and my headaches had even temporarily disappeared. And it should go without saying, uh, don't try this at home, especially if you're a young person listening, don't follow my example, because honestly, I don't even plan on trying that again. In fact, I'll most likely just end up throwing that Yohimbi stuff in the trash. But that being said, as I mentioned, it was indeed quite the sublime high. Uh, But like I also said, when you're the only one in that state, you end up sticking out like a sore thumb. I ended up acting like a wild man, saying wild things I shouldn't have said. It was one of those nights where the next morning you have to email or message everyone with apologies. So as fun as it may have been at times, not my finest hour to say the least. Okay, so now to bring things back into the wheelhouse of atheism or religion. So it invariably never fails. Whenever I go out to a party at some point during the progression of the night, someone's bound to start a conversation about God or the meaning of life, etc., etc. And for someone like me who is very passionate about the subject matter, you might think I'd be absolutely delighted. But if you're a fellow non-believer, you can probably empathize with what it's like to be... In one of these situations, you get that uh uh-oh feeling because you know most likely no matter how rational, articulate, and courteous you try to be, you're probably going to some degree get painted as the villain of the piece because most people believe in something. Even if they eschew organized religion, they still most likely try to hang their hat on some kind of airy-fairy stuff, and they don't like having their suspension of disbelief toyed with. So as a non-believer, you feel like you have a couple of options. You can either jump in and try to be the standard-bearer for reason, or you can shut your mouth and stand by the sidelines. Will people spell platitudinous ideas about God or the afterlife, etc., that you've heard debunked or rationally countered a thousand times. And I have to admit, I'm trying to turn over a new leaf. My policy is still that in the public forum of ideas, on a podcast like this one, or during a scholarly debate at a university, etc., it should be gloves off, all guns blazing in the name of reason and science. But when it comes to my personal life, I value my friendships enough where I don't want to risk losing them over differences on religion or spirituality. And also, I know a lot of people who have experienced serious personal loss, and I don't like the idea of trying to deprive them of an idea that gives them comfort or consolation. And so sometimes I may still gently try to explain why I think their idea doesn't hold water— But I really won't push, and sometimes I'll just nod and say, yeah, I see where you're coming from, even though it might be very tempting to push the matter and try to debunk what they're saying. It's more important to me not to see them hurt, to not cause them discomfort or rob them of their consolation. In fact, at the very beginning of the night, a very good friend of mine brought up the first law of thermodynamics. You know, the thing about how energy can be transformed, but cannot be created or destroyed. And many people looking for proof of the afterlife latch on to that bit, even though the laws of thermodynamics refer to the physical sciences and, uh, you know, heat, kinetic energy, etc. Not some vague, unquantifiable spirit energy. And I kind of gently started to try to explain this to her, when with this kind of charming little mischievous smile, she was like, I know but that's how I choose to interpret it. And I was like, hey, okay. I actually admired her honesty and self-awareness. She was making a conscious decision to interpret it in a way that gave her comfort, and I wasn't going to uh, push it. Now, I may be painting a kinder, gentler picture of myself, But I did get a little heated towards the end of the night. I was in the kitchen and somehow got caught up in another kind of spiritual conversation. An old friend of mine was to my left explaining how some kind of close call had convinced him of the existence of some kind of intervening divine force. And across from me was some dude I had met that night and and something about him rubbed me the wrong way. And he was kind of dismissively or condescendingly taking issue with my lack of belief in God. And so finally, I became kind of heated and indignant. And I was addressing the idea of surviving a close call as being proof of God. And I said, so God delivers you from a fatal car crash. What about all the other people that die on the highway every damn day? What about everyone wiped out in natural disasters, etc.? And I've brought this up on the show many times. I usually refer to it as feeling that there's these hidden hands, a phrase I borrow from Joseph Campbell, that there's these hidden hands that kind of guide us, that maybe stare us away from danger or stare us toward our goals, etc. And I felt that as well at times. But the difference is I'll stop and ask myself, well, okay, I'm having this feeling or impression that something's helping me out. But for all I know, it's just a neurological phenomenon or some kind of mental safety mechanism. feels a lot more cozy thinking you're being looked after by some benevolent cosmic force than that it's all random and you could go at any moment. And then the ethical problem I have with this belief is that it's somewhat narcissistic. Daddy's looking out for me while others senselessly die, in a sense, you know? Aren't I special? And I'm not saying that's the way my friend feels about it because he's a really good kid. But when you try to really stop and look at that way of thinking ethically and rationally, there is that kind of implication. And I felt bad because my friend who was making the argument is a really good, upbeat kid. My only consolation is that I think he's so upbeat and good natured that I don't think my indignation bothered him. But anyway, so, wow, it's been barely over 20 minutes. For some reason, I thought this was going to be one of those really long episodes. So I thought I'd end on a somewhat lighthearted note. Here's a compilation of some funny moments from a recent conversation Sam Harris had with Richard Dawkins. You can find the whole conversation on Sam Harris's Waking Up podcast.
1: Thank you all for coming. This is really, it's, it's an honor to be here, and it really is an honor to be here with you, Richard. I get to return the favor, he had me at Oxford, I think five years ago, so welcome to Los Angeles. So I, I'm going to, this is gonna be very much a conversation, but what I did, I was worried about this. I wasn't worried about tonight, I was worried about tomorrow night. My fear was that Richard and I would have a, a scintillating conversation tonight, and then tomorrow night try doggedly to recapitulate it, word for word. And, and yet feign spontaneity. And if you know my position on lying, you know, <laughs> that doesn't work. So what I did is I went out to all of you asking for questions, and I got thousands. And so I, I, I picked among what looked promising. So I can guarantee that the two nights will be reasonably different because the different questions will come up. But we won't hew too narrowly to the questions. We'll, we'll just have a conversation. But as we come out here, I, I find that I, I want to ask you, Richard, about your socks and I'm not not sure what the question is but i have just
2: come from Las Vegas the conference of um, psychon and one of the things we had was a workshop on cold reading which is the technique whereby so-called mentalists uh, are supposed to read each other's thoughts and what they're really doing is just simply looking at the clothes and the general appearance and uh, assessing it and we had to pair off for this workshop and I was with a, an, a nice young woman, and we sort of sized each other up. And I said to her, I think I, I'm getting that you come from somewhere in the west of the states. I think maybe, maybe not California, maybe a bit further north. And, uh, and of course, I was simply reading her label, which said she came from Oregon. Um, <laughs> um, and then she summed, summed me up and she said, I think you may have some problem with your eyes. <laughs> uh, maybe colorblind. And I'm serious about this. I'm trying to spread a meme for wearing odd socks. (laughs) There's a kind of tyranny of forcing us to buy socks in
3: pairs.
2: (laughs) Shoes, Shoes have chirality. Left shoe and right shoe are not interchangeable. But socks don't. And when you lose one of a pair of socks, you're forced to throw the other
1: one away, which is it's absurd. So what I want... Although, honestly, Richard, you just told me a story that suggests that shoes are interchangeable. Oh my god, I,
2: that's right. Um, that's rather an embarrassing story.
1: Someone is going to find this on, the, the relevant yeah, okay. video I will, I on the internet. I will tell the
2: story, now you've let the cat out of the bag. Um, I was doing a television film called Sex, Death, and the Meaning of Life. And in the death uh, episode, uh, we were talking about suicide. And there's a famous suicide spot, it's a bit like San Francisco, the Golden Gate Bridge, where people have famously jumped to their death. And all around this place, Beachy Head, is a very, very high cliff in the south of England. There are rather sad little crosses where people have jumped off. Uh, And we were filming the sequence on suicide, and I had to walk very solemnly and slowly and in a melancholy frame of mind past these crosses and the camera was focused on my feet walking past these little low crosses. And I felt incredibly uncomfortable. I had this sort of uncanny feeling of, of being uncomfortable and I, I couldn't understand why. And then eventually my, it was my feet that were uncomfortable walking past these crosses. And eventually the director called cut and we went off and I took my shoes off because they were so painful. And only then did I realize I put them on the wrong way round. <laughs> so this is preserved for posterity in close up.
1: I want to see that video. Someone the, the find that video. The weird thing
2: is none of, none of the television audience ever wrote in to, to complain about this. So maybe this at least will arouse their attention.
1: So the first question, Richard, which I thought could Provoke some interesting reflection is, why do you both court so much controversy? And oh, we
2: don't do it. Mean, um,
1: uh, we don't court it. it, it pursues us. Well, I think, I mean, w- what I've noticed is that there are undoubtedly people who are friends of ours, colleagues of ours, who agree with us down the line who seem to feel no temptation to pick all of the individual battles we pick, and one doesn't have to be a coward not to want to fight all of these culture war battles, although it, it helps. <laughs> <laughs> but, there, but there are, we have friends who are decidedly not cowards who I mean someone like Steve Pinker, he stakes out controversial positions, but he is not in the trenches in quite the same way as we are and, I'm wondering what you think about that. I mean, did you you see a choice for yourself? Do you find yourself revisiting this choice periodically? I I think
2: it's a perfectly respectable position to take that that a scientist has better things to do. And I I don't take that position, and I think you don't either. Um, I do think it's important to fight the good fight when we we do have, when science, when reason has vocal and powerful and well-financed enemies. And um, so I'm not sure what particular battles the questioner has in mind when he says we caught controversy, um, but I, I suppose I, I, I believe so strongly in truth uh, and if I see truth being actively threatened by competing ideologies which actually not only would fight for the opposite of truth but would indoctrinate children in the opposite of truth.
3: Hmm.
2: Um, I feel impelled to fight, only verbally. I mean, I don't feel impelled to actually get a rifle or something. <laughs>
1: well, there's time yet. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I, I can think of two examples. One, one I mentioned in the reception beforehand. Um, a professor of astronomy somewhere in America who writes... Papers, mathematical papers in astronomical journals in which his mathematics, his mathematical ideas, um, accept that the universe is 13.8 billion years old, and yet he privately believes it's 6,000 years old. So here is a man who knows his physics, he knows his astronomy, he knows the evidence that the universe is 13 billion years old. And yet, so split-brained is he that he, he actually privately departs from everything in his professional life. Um, well, surely we have to accept that he, he, I don't know, cannot be reasoned out, but I mean, he, he already knows the evidence and, and will not be reasoned out of his foolishness.
1: Yeah, I didn't say that you could always succeed, but I, I think, and, and clearly there are, May I have this, this, this bias, as you do, that if the conversation could just proceed long enough, the ground for science would continually be conquered and it never gets reversed. Yeah, and it, it is being and will be. It, yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it and, 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 it, and you yes. never see the... I mean, this is a unidirectional conquest of territory, so you yes. never see a point about which science was once the authority, but now the best answer is religious. Yeah, that's right. right. But you, you always see the reverse of that, and yeah, that's... And, right. that's and, and, and actually, most, most scientists who call themselves religious,
2: if you actually probe them, I mean, they don't believe really stupid things like, like six-day creation and things. Most right. of them don't. Yeah.
1: Although I, I find that Christian scientists, not, not Christian scientists as in the, the, the cult, <laughs> But scientists who happen to be Christian believe much more than your average rabbi. This is, this is a way... That's true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this Chris- Christianity is, and Muslim scientists no doubt return the favor.
2: I, I get the feeling your average, your average rabbi, like, the, like your average chaplain of an Oxford college, doesn't actually believe in God at all.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I've met that rabbi. <laughs> so... There's a couple of fun questions here that I just, want, I just wanted to hear Richard react to. Are there any biological extinctions that you would consider virtuous? For instance, should we eradicate the mosquito? You have 10 seconds to decide.
2: It would, it would have to be more than one mosquito. There's the, there's the malaria mosquito, the yellow fever mosquito. Mm. Um, yeah, all mosquitoes. All yeah. mosquitoes. <laughs> Mosquitoes are unbelievably beautiful creatures. Um, yeah. uh,
3: that's that's million, the most irrational thing ever. Child,
2: the great, the great um, uh, um, expert on fleas. Um, and um, she, she, uh, she presented the Department of Zoology in, in, in Oxford with a gigantic blown up photograph of a mosquito. And it was mm. a fantastic piece of work of
1: art. And it, uh, by a malevolent God? Yes. <laughs> if ever there were proof of God's malevolence, it's got to be the mosquito. I have no
2: hesitation in killing individual mosquitoes. Um,
1: <laughs> but wouldn't, wouldn't you want to be a little more efficient than that with CRISPR <laughs> or something?
2: I haven't thought about it before. I, I think I would not wish to
1: completely extinguish. Can I throw a little more on the balance? We, we've had, reliably, year after year, two million people killed by mosquito-borne illness. And now, now it's cut down to, I think, 800,000. So we're making progress with bed nets. but For some reason, I find myself less reluctant to
2: extinguish the malarial parasite that the mosquito bears, but that's probably not, not very logical. Um, <laughs> Well, so and, the, I mean, we, we have extinguished the smallpox virus, right? Um, except for a few lab um, yeah. cultures.
1: Yes, and then, like geniuses, then we tell people how to synthesize it online. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the flip side of that, of course, is the Jurassic Park question. Should we reboot the T-Rex yes, if we Yes, have... yes. yes. <laughs> Fantastic. I
2: wish. I wished, I, wished, I mean, I thought the Jurassic Park method of doing it was incredibly ingenious, and I, I loved mm-hmm. that. Um, what, what was not ingenious was the ludicrous injection of, was it chaos theory or one of those nine days wonder um, fashionable uh, th- things? I don't but remember. The, but, but the, the, the idea of, of getting mosquitoes in amber and extracting DNA and reconstructing dinosaurs—that's an amazingly good science fiction idea, if only it were possible. Unfortunately, uh, the DNA is too, is too old for that, to, for that to happen. If it were, I would definitely wish to see that done. <laughs> what,
1: what could go wrong? <laughs> Richard seems to want to live in a maximally dangerous world. <laughs> Filled with mosquitos and T-Rexes. <laughs> My concern with AI is that we will just ram past it and we will find ourselves in the presence of intelligent systems that will be so competent and we will have built them in a way to play upon our intuitions of, of emotion and we will obviously build uh, appropriate emotions into them and they'll be aware of our emotions. And if you finally build robots that that are humanoid, that, that, that are so good that they're no longer uncanny to us. You get out of the what's called the uncanny valley, and they no longer look creepy, now they just look perfect. I think we will lose the intuition that there was any mysterious question here to worry about, and we will just feel, because every intuition that you're in the presence of a sentient other will be played upon, we will just feel we are in the presence of consciousness without ever knowing that that's the case. As I am with you now. I mean, mean, it it, it um, is, I mean, you are, there's a, the fact that we are both the same sort of thing, that we have the same evolutionary history, and that overcomes this this notion of of solipsism being, I mean, many kind of first year philosophy students think solipsism, the idea that maybe only I exist, everyone else is just a, a zombie, Many people think that's somehow the most parsimonious or the most economical view, because you know, I'm sure I exist. I'm sure I'm having an experience. I'm not sure about all you people. In fact, I can't even see you people. <laughs> have, you, but, uh, do,
2: do, have you heard Bertrand Russell's solipsism story? Bert, Bertrand Russell got a letter from a, from a lady who said, Dear Lord Russell, I'm so delighted to hear you are a solipsist. There are so few of us around <laughs> these days. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that that shows how untenable the view is. Even a solipsist can't hold it.
0: All right. And who says atheists don't have a sense of humor? Well, no one should say that. George Carlin, Penn and Teller, Paul Provenza, uh, Bill Maher, Ricky Gervais, Tim Minchin, and on and on. I think I have a decent sense of humor, even when I'm feeling like I have a survival knife in my skull. But all right, you guys know the drill. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, you can subscribe to the show via iTunes. You can check out the archives at podbean.com. Just look for The Week in Doubt. And if you want to help support the show monetarily, you can donate as little as 99 cents a month via patreon.com slash doubt. All right, thanks, and uh, watch out for that, Yohimbi. And here's uh, some more from my friend Faye.